our sermon series, our Christmas sermon series, as you may have guessed already and seen, is Family Christmas. Uh, we picked this for a couple different reasons. Uh, one is that family and Christmas, they just tend to go together, right? Everyone loves to be with family at Christmas for the most part. Uh, Christmas Eve day is one of the busiest travel days of the year because everyone is trying to get home for Christmas. We have this image in our mind of gathering around the table, gathering around the fire, of, of being with those who we are closest to to celebrate. It's natural for family and Christmas to go together. And by natural, I mean that if you don't show up for family Christmas dinner, your mom is going to kill you. So there's this also sense of uh, sometimes obligation. It's interesting to note that uh, Christmas Eve day is one of the busiest travel days of the year, but Christmas day uh, is one of the busiest days for movie theaters. Uh, it seems that for many people, the best way to spend time as a family is to go into a dark room and watch a screen and not talk to each other. <laughs> So you have this interesting dynamic with family and, and Christmas. Uh, but Christmas isn't just something to celebrate as a family or endure as a family. It is fundamentally a story about a specific family. Uh, we, we know the, probably the most famous characters, Mary, Mother Mary, Father Joseph, and of course, uh, the child Jesus. But did you know there's also part of the, the first family of Christmas, there are some out-of-town relatives, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and John, who are related to Mary, and actually they are the beginning of the Christmas story. The beginning of the good news that God brings into the world happens through them. And so that's going to be our focus today, is to look at the, the first family of Christmas, these relatives of Mary, but also to be reminded right away of the good news that God was bringing into the world and how he included them in this process and then what it means for us. So we're going to have three points all about good news, but just to begin... We're going to read the first few verses of our text and see kind of the setting of where this all uh, happens. So beginning in verse 5, here's God's word. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. We'll pause there for a moment. You can see uh, already the context. Luke always gives us lots of historical context. This happened during the reign of Herod the Great, uh, which means it was a time of oppression for God's people. Herod and the Romans were in cahoots. Uh, there was not a lot of liberty or freedom for them. Uh, the big picture scene, though, sort of zooms in quickly because we find ourselves focused on this ordinary couple, uh, sort of a country priest living probably in the hill country of Jerusalem. And we find out actually quite a bit about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, we see that they are both from priestly lines. Elizabeth says she's, from, she's one of the daughters of Aaron. They're both active in ministry. They're both quite advanced in years, which would have meant like, like 60, 65 in their day, like past their prime, right? Near the expiration date. Of course, today you're robust at 60. But back then, it was near the end. And, and the most significant thing about them is that they did not have children. They did not have any child, their, their whole married life. And what we, what we realize about them in light of this beginning part and also a little bit at the end is that this reality of not having kids would have been more than just a disappointment for them. There would have been a lot of uh, condemnation uh, on them from the community. Elizabeth talks about it as a reproach. And that's because people in that day, they considered if you didn't have kids that God was somehow displeased with you and that you were probably in sin somehow. 
And so Elizabeth, you can imagine, she would have endured a lot of insensitive, hurtful comments from the people around her. They would have talked to her, well, probably you're in sin, probably to turn away from some sin in your life. That's why God hasn't given you children. There's something wrong with you. Everywhere she went, she would have been reminded of this missing piece of her life and the attitudes of the people towards her were not very loving. Before we move on, I think it's, I think it's helpful for us just to pause for a moment and recognize that, that we also, we need to be very, very careful. We should be very careful about how we speak about children to those couples that don't have any. I've heard many well-meaning people talk to a couple without kids, and, and because they're so excited about kids, they talk to them, when are you going to have children? Why haven't you had children? Why are you waiting so long? Here, hold my baby. You'll see you really like them if you can just hold one. And they mean it, I think, from a, a good point of view, but it can, at times, be an added hurt onto an already difficult situation. And so we as a church should be a place where where we're gracious and kind. And so we just need to recognize we should be very, very careful. If we're in relationship with someone and there's a, a closeness and a familiarity there, then that may be a conversation that we have. But for Elizabeth, she endured a lot of nice and not so nice people who would make comments about her childlessness. And the fact that the Bible here says that she was righteous and blameless shows her depth of character that there is no bitterness in her heart, even though there were people who were very, very unkind towards her. The truth of the matter is that probably for her and Zechariah, they just had assumed by this point that that ship had sailed. They had made peace with it. They were older now. Probably the comments were few and far between. And they thought, man, we have still made a life. God has been good to us. God's been gracious to us. This is our life, just a life without kids, which makes the next part of the story so very unexpected. This is, uh, we're going to entitle this part, Good News Proclaimed. And I'm going to read the next section, uh, verses 8 to 13. And here's what happens when Zechariah is involved in his priestly duties. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. We'll pause there for a moment. So I want to give you a pretty clear picture of what's going on here. Zechariah is a priest of Israel. There were about 8,000 of them at the time. And uh, a couple times a year, his division got to go to Jerusalem and help with the services that happened at the temple. So here is a picture of the temple complex, just to give you a kind of sense of where we're at. This is the whole complex uh, from a big picture point of view. And we're going to zoom in and show you where he was. So uh, out here... This is where the people would have been praying, uh, would have been prepared, and then Zechariah would enter through these doors into the holy place. He would not go to the most holy place that was once a year for the high priest, but twice a day they would enter here, walking past the uh, table with showbread, the golden lampstand to this altar, and that's where Zechariah, he would offer prayer for the people of God. He would be burning incense. It was a very important and solemn moment. And all of a sudden, right here to the right of the altar, an angel appeared. In the darkness there would have been, you know, kind of dim. And all of a sudden, this bright light, this angel, and not surprisingly, uh, Zechariah is, it says in the text he's troubled, but really that word could be translated terrified. 
He's freaked out. There's this angel that appears, totally freaks him out, and the angel responds in the way that angels always respond, which is, do not be afraid. It's okay. It's good. This is a good thing that I'm here. Do not be afraid. And then the angel explains why Zechariah should not be afraid. The angel says, your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. The angel's saying, your, your, your prayers have been answered. Which does, I think, make us wonder, should, made me wonder, what exactly was Zechariah praying for there? It seems like, because of what the angel said, that Zechariah was there in the holy place of God, praying still for a child. But I'm not sure that makes the most sense. For a couple reasons. Uh, number one, he certainly doesn't react like he was praying for a child. We're going to see in a moment his reaction. And when the angel says, you're going to have a child, he doesn't say, oh, that's so great, I was just praying for that. Instead, he says, well, what do you mean? I'm old, I can't have a child. He kind of reacts like, what do you, who was talking about children? No one was talking about children. He's totally surprised. The second reason, though, probably the more important reason that I think that he probably was not praying about children in this moment is that his role there as a priest was to pray for the people of God. He came to pray for the redemption, salvation, liberation of God's people, and we know already from Scripture that he was a blameless and righteous man. That doesn't mean he was perfect and sinless. It just means that he was faithful, that he tried to do what God had called him to do. And so it would make sense that there in that moment, that is what he was praying. So how do the angel's words make sense then, if that's what, if that's what he was praying? Well, they make sense because what's actually happening is that God is answering the two deepest longings of Zechariah's heart. The first is that for decades he'd been praying for a child. And the angel is saying, you are now going to have a child, even in your old age. But the second is that Zechariah, like every faithful priest, every person of God, wanted the Messiah to come. Wanted God to visit his people again and bring liberation and salvation and what the angel was saying, something Zechariah did not get right away, is that those two things were happening in one event. They were being ushered in through the birth of his own child, through John. John the Baptist is who we come to know him as, but here the, the angel explains a bit about this son that he would have. So let's turn our attention back to the text. Verse 14, here's what uh, the angel says. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So this is a description of John, John the Baptist, one who would come, and if you see the language there, it says that he will um, be, be joyful. His father and mother will be glad, will be joyful, not just because he's born, but because of the kind of man he will become. You see there in the language, it says that he will be great before the Lord. And we get an interesting insight here into greatness from God's point of view. If you notice the way that he is great, there's a couple things that stand out. Number one, we see that John will be set apart where it says there, he must not drink wine or strong drink. That's a reference to a specific vow. It's called the Nazarite vow. And those who wanted to set themselves apart as, as people of God, they would make this vow and they wouldn't drink alcohol. They wouldn't cut their hair. They would live kind of an ascetic lifestyle. And that's what we see with John. When we meet him later on in his ministry, he's off in the wilderness, wearing a camel hair cloak, eating locusts and honey, 
definitely apart from society, but also definitely serving the Lord. That's John. That's the kind of ministry he will have. But the true greatness of his ministry is not in himself. It's in his role as one who will announce the coming Messiah. See, anyone important in our world to this very day, if they are truly important, they don't usually just enter a room. They are always announced. There is always someone who will, who will tell people that the king of whoever is entering, the, the president of whatever is entering, even for movie stars who are presenting some award, they're, they're announced by someone else. One sign of importance is that you have someone going before you heralding your coming. And that's what we find in John. John's whole ministry was about shining a spotlight on the coming Messiah. We still see this today in our sports teams. Have you noticed, uh, I went to a Canucks game recently, and before the Canucks take to the ice, there is a lot of fanfare. There's like, there's songs, there's videos playing, the lights are all dim, there's lights everyone. The announcement before they take the ice is, is trying to communicate to everyone, hey, this is a great team. This is a fantastic team. Get excited, get hyped up. I know they're not as great as they used to be, so it's kind of rings a bit hollow, but that's the essence of the big advancement. And uh, a little bit of sports trivia. Do you know which sports team was the first ones to really announce their team in this way, to, to announce the starting lineup? You might have some guesses. Probably, if you were to guess, uh, the Chicago Bulls might be up there. In fact, that, that's the truth. The Chicago Bulls were the first team to do any kind of big announcement before their uh, team took to the court. And the reason they did it is because they had drafted a new player. Back in 1984, they drafted this guy, uh, Michael Jordan. And even before the season began, the Bulls head office phoned Terry Adams, who was the PA announcer, and they said, look, we, we drafted this guy from Carolina. He's amazing. We want you to do something special before each game, and we want to announce the lineup and then have Michael Jordan be the last name that you announce because we want to really get the crowd involved. So Terry Edwards put his thinking cap on, and he did something which doesn't seem very exciting to us, but at the time was revolutionary. He, all they did was they shut off the lights, and they put a spotlight on the team. That was it. And everyone was like, wow, that's amazing. So creative. Uh, the other thing he did, though, is that he had a song that he found that really built up the momentum. So uh, we're going to play this song just to kind of get you in the moment. You can imagine being in uh, the Chicago Bulls stadium. There it is. And they would dim the lights, and then this song would come up. No one, this wasn't a familiar song at the time. You'll recognize it. Uh, this is by the Alan Parsons Project. It's called Sirius, right? Nowadays, they play it at all sorts of sports events, like all the time. But back then, it was totally new. And the, the thing about it is that it would, it would grow in intensity, right? The, the, the 80s guitar really would just stir people up at that time. And then there'd be these crescendos, like, right? And the announcer would say, and now, the Bulls starting lineup. I don't know all of them. Scotty Pippen, uh, whoever the guy, Dennis Rodman. And they would end with Michael Jordan. And by that point, everyone would just be going bananas, screaming, going crazy, totally hyped up because they knew that this was one of the greatest teams that had ever lived. Okay, we have to stop the music because actually we should maybe keep it. That'd be great to preach to. I think it really adds. Um, so what you have there is a great combination of an announcement that ties into the greatness of the team. But I want you to listen. Uh, this is what one of the guys from the, the media relations office, Tim Hallam, uh, in talking about this introdu introduction, because this introduction became huge. People would come early to, to hear it. Other teams started doing it. But listen to what he says. He says, if we were introducing someone who was not 
of Michael Jordan's star status, the starting lineup introduction may not have even taken off as a tradition. Because of Jordan, everything became special. The intro was just the icing on the cake. What he's saying is if we did this big lead up and then there was some guy who couldn't shoot, no one would be that excited. But because it was Jordan, it, it made sense. The greatness of the introduction was that it pointed to someone who was fantastic. And the same is true in John's life. John was great, but only because he shone a spotlight on the one who was greater. That his whole life was dedicated to making much of Jesus, to preparing people for the fact that Jesus is coming. Here's what John says about Jesus. He says to the people, look, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's saying, I, my ministry is great, but his is going to be so much greater. And look at John, uh, that should say 3.30. When they're asking him, people come to ask him, hey, John, like, what about Jesus? He's, he's kind of getting more popular than you. And John says, look, he must increase, but I must decrease. John's whole um, goal in life was for people to take their eyes off of him and put them on Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who actually brought the good news into the world, who brought hope and healing and an answer to the sin of the people. And look here what Jesus says about John. In Luke 7, 28, he says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That gives us an insight into the real greatness from God's point of view. Because there's much of our life, I think, spent trying to achieve some measure of greatness, some measure of importance. And what we have here is God saying very, very clearly, look, if you want to be significant, if you want to be great, if you want to be a real help to the people around you, then you will spend your time making much of Christ. Because in Christ is the answer to what our humanity needs. Now, to live this kind of life really is a call to self-denial. Right? That's what John was doing. The whole time he was telling people, repent, turn from your sins, don't look at me, look at Jesus. All the fame he had, he didn't want any of it. It's hard to live that way. It seems unnatural, in a sense, to live that way where we don't put the focus on ourselves. So how is it that, that John was able to do this? Well, we see uh, a bit of an insight in our text. Verse 15, the angel says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now, prophets beforehand had been anointed by the Holy Spirit, but he was the first one who was filled with the Holy Spirit, that he had God himself within him. He was a picture of the hope for every uh, person of faith in Christ after the fact. And what this means is that as John lived his life, he was not trying to fill his life. He was not trying to find satisfaction. He was already satisfied in God himself. And he got to live out of that fullness. See, there's other ways that we, we try to get full. In fact, uh, the picture that came to my mind is a family dinner, family feast. Uh, we have the benefit of having uh, two family dinners, Don's mom and my mom. And, um, and so I've observed a lot of people try to get well-filled at a family Christmas feast. And I've noticed that there are mistakes that people make. Uh, for example, you may know this one, but there are some people who, who will fill up on a lot of bread or salad at a Christmas feast. And they go away and they eat and then they're, they're, they're empty later because all they had was like some iceberg lettuce and, and some bread. And you say, are you new? Have you never been here before? You, you, you gotta put the bread in your pocket and then you put all the food on your plate so that you get enough of the real stuff, the good stuff. That can happen where we, get, we think we're filled, but we're not. The other thing that can happen is the opposite. 
where you see people coming back and they have a Mount Everest of food. And it's just like a massive plate and your Uncle Frank spends the whole, he's eating and eating and then the rest of the evening he's laying on the couch. Oh, and his stomach is so full. Oh, I ate too much. It's like, obviously you ate too much. You ate the entire dinner, the whole, everything. That happens to us uh, in life where we fill ourselves in a certain way, but then actually we end up sick. It doesn't actually satisfy us in the way that we think it will. But the worst mistake in terms of being well-filled at a Christmas dinner is to not leave room for dessert. There are people who at the end of a meal say, oh, I didn't leave room for dessert. And my word to them is, you fool, what's wrong with you? Don't you know that the way to eat a Christmas feast to be well-filled is to leave just enough room so you can squeeze in a couple pieces of pie. That's when you're satisfied. That's when you're, you're joy-filled. And in our lives, the same things happen because there is, a, there is a deception about the things in our world, things that we try to fill our lives with, things that, that claim to satisfy us but leave us empty or, or leave us longing for more. We know this is true because no matter what is under our tree on Christmas Day, no matter if it's the the thing that we hoped for, the thing we told everyone we wanted, we asked everyone to pool their resources to get us this one gift, we may open it. We may have a thrill in the moment, but we know that that is not going to ultimately satisfy us because the next day, we're probably going to be at the Boxing Day sales looking for more. We know that that's, that's the nature of things in this world, that no matter how much you fill your life with them, they do not ultimately satisfy. John saw this clearly from a young age. What the angel is saying is that he is bringing good news to the people of God because it is a news that will genuinely satisfy. In Christ, there is an answer to the longings for hope and fullness, one that does not diminish, one that does not twist our minds or our hearts. And John's role was to continue to proclaim that good news. Unfortunately, Zechariah, he did not receive this news in faith. If you look at this next section, we're going to call good news disbelieved, we're going to see his response was not really one of faith. So here's verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am a man, I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So, the response from Zechariah is, is one of disbelief. Right? He says to the angel, uh, how, how is this going to happen? I'm an old man. My, my wife is old. I, I don't see how this is going to come to pass. I think it's interesting that, I mean, if anyone was going to believe a word like this from God, you'd think it would be Zechariah. He was a priest of God. He knew the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. He knew that God sometimes sent angels to people, that God could do miraculous things like give a barren woman a child. And he was there in the holy place. Like he, was, he wasn't just off on a road somewhere. He was there where you're supposed to meet with God. But even with all of that, he did not believe. He doubted. And I think it's because, in part, that this was just so very different than he expected. I mean, he had been praying for a child for decades. But in his mind, he must have imagined having a child in his youth. Right? That would, God, if you're going to bless me, that would be great. 
to have a child when I'm young, we're just starting our family, Lord, that would be just such a great blessing. But a child in our old age is so very different. It's unexpected. It's not what he imagined, and so it was difficult for him to wrap his mind around it. The other thing I think is that he probably assumed that that window of blessing where God was going to answer his prayers probably thought that was closed. Like it just wasn't going to happen. And so when, when God came to speak to him, he just he couldn't believe it. I think this is true for us also today. My guess is that there are some things that we've been praying about that either the answer or what seems to be happening is very different than we thought. Or, or just it's been so long that we figured that, well, God, God's not actually going to be able to bless me in this way. It's natural for us to think that our timeline and our way is, is the greatest blessing that we could receive. But what we see here in the text is that God's way, however different, is always better. I mean, for Zechariah, he thought the, the best thing is to have a child in my youth. But what God showed him is that it was actually way better to have a child in your old age. Because in this specific moment, what it meant is that he gets to be part of the good news story that God is bringing to the entire world. That he and Elizabeth get to be part of God's plan in a way that is focused and intentional. They get to see their son become a prophet and proclaim the, the good news of the coming Messiah. He gets the joy of seeing this miraculous event. All of that is way better because it highlights God's character and his abilities even more. And the other thing we see, of course, is that this is genuine good news. And see, God, if we're ever tempted to think that God cannot bring truly good news into our life, we need only look back to stories like this and see that, that God never misses an opportunity to truly bless his children. He is always working both in the big picture, things of the world, which is the Messiah coming, but also in the minute details of our lives. That's what Gabriel, if you look at Gabriel's response, that's basically what he says to Zechariah. Zechariah says, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really old. I don't think this is going to happen. If you look at verse 19, uh, Gabriel doesn't explain how it could happen. He says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. You don't need to tell me that you're old. Actually, I know that. You don't, you don't need to worry about the details here, Zechariah. We got those things figured out. What you should be focused on is the good news that I'm bringing. See, Zechariah, he totally missed it. It would be like, just <clears throat> imagine if on Christmas morning, you got an envelope from a friend a very wealthy friend, and they just said, I've decided I'm going to send you on a cruise around the world. All expenses paid, three months, you're going to be on a luxurious cruise ship, and so they gave you the envelope, and you opened it up, you saw the tickets, and your response was, oh, my, oh, my passport has expired. Um, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go on this cruise. Your friend would say, what are you talking about? Don't worry about your passport. We can get your passport renewed. You should respond in joy. Look at what you've been given. Don't worry about the details. You don't have to worry God about, look, I'm kind of old. I don't know how this is going to happen. Gabriel's saying, this is good news. This is the best news that anyone has ever heard, that your son will be part of the redemptive story of God. You should be celebrating and rejoicing. You should be jumping around and dancing. But instead, Zechariah got caught up in the details of things. He disbelieved. And, and the consequence, you can see, it made clear this was a serious thing but one where God was still gracious, meaning that the rebuke of God was that he would be silent until John came into the world. So nine months of silence, but it wasn't forever. That There was a sense of, of grace in that, 
that for nine months he had the opportunity to reflect on the good news that he missed. And what we see there, when he went out, verse 22, he came out, he wasn't able to speak to them, everyone was like, what's going on? He must have seen a vision. But in the end, we see that Zechariah, he, he did come to understand and accept and enjoy this good news. In fact, there's this interesting a mirror in, in Elizabeth's response as well. Both of them, when they initially hear about it, they seem to hesitate. Uh, look at verse 24 and 25. These are the last couple of verses. Uh, it says this. So after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, uh, and for five months she kept herself hidden. So there, Elizabeth, Zechariah would have gone home and communicated, written down to her, look, here's what God's going to do. She actually conceived. She knows she's pregnant, but even in that she doesn't let people know. I think we can see that as, as a sort of hesitancy on her, her part. That, that she's seen God work, but it's tough to believe that it's actually happening. And so for both of them, there's this element of disbelief at first. But by God's grace, by the time the child comes, they are full of faith and joy. And that's our last point, that, that there's good news to be enjoyed. We see that for Elizabeth, because in verse 25, it says, thus the Lord, this is what she says, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. See, she recognizes, look, I've lived a life where the people around me have been constantly condemning. But here, in the personal aspect of this good news, I'm free from that. I experience joy and gladness that no longer will people look on me in that way. That's, that's the kindness of God. But that personal uh, kindness is just a, a foretaste of the greater kindness, the greater grace of God. That because of John, who heralded the coming of Jesus, we can live a life without reproach from God. That our sin will not bring condemnation upon us because Jesus lived a life in our place perfectly and then went to the cross and took on the condemnation of God. That's always the way the good news works both in the small instances of our lives and the big picture of humanity. And Zechariah, he finally comes to a place of, of really understanding this. You can imagine just for nine months just thinking and, and reading scripture and what we find when he finally speaks is it's like he's making up for lost time. It all pours out of him in a song. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you, you can see it at the end of chapter one. I'm just gonna read, he's, he has a whole song that he sings all about the coming uh, of John, his son, and the Messiah to come. Uh, but listen to the last few verses. This is what really, uh, you can tell that he is, he is full of joy and hope. He says this to his son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the ultimate good news. This is the ultimate reason for joy at Christmas. Because God made a way through his sending of his son that we who were in darkness, the darkness of sin, would be able to come into the light. That we who were in conflict with God would be able to have peace. And that we who had sins that plagued us, we would be able to experience forgiveness. And so Zechariah, fully appreciating, full of faith. He, he speaks this, this poem, this prophecy, proclaiming the true good news that comes in Christ. And what we need to see here is the connection 
between the experience, the enjoyment of the good news, and the believing of it. Because without the believing of it, the good news, it just passes right over us. For, for both Zechariah and Elizabeth, there was a moment there where they, they kind of heard it, but it didn't really impact their hearts. But when we come to a point of faith, of really trusting God and what he's doing, then there, there's genuine joy in our hearts. And so these two questions are what I want to leave us with. In light of this, this proclamation of good news, this picture of, of doubt and then enjoyment of good news, <clears throat> here's the first question. Uh, is there a way in which you are filling your life with the wrong thing? Instead of God himself, instead of the spirit of God, instead of the things of God in Jesus, it, are there ways in which you are filling your life and expecting to be full, and yet there's a constant emptiness? That's, that's, the, that's the litmus test, I would say. The way in which you can, you can figure out if you're filling your life with the wrong thing is, is, are you still longing for more? Is there a lack of peace fundamentally in your life? And secondly, um, are you in some way missing the good news of Jesus? See, Zechariah, for a moment there, he really missed the good news of what God was doing. And so you might ask, how would I know? How would I know if I've missed? I mean, I may be a believer. Zechariah was a man of God and yet missed it somehow. How would, I, how would I tell if I'm somehow missing the good news that God has for me? And the answer is, well, there, if there's a lack of joy in your life, then more than likely there's some aspect of the gospel, of the good news that you've missed, that you're not seeing yourself in light of all that God has done through Christ. And certainly if you are here and you're not a person of faith, that there would be, um, if there's lack of joy in your life, if there's a sense of emptiness, I would direct your attention to what we find here in the word of God. That the overwhelming emphasis of the Christmas story is that there is good news. And there was someone sent to announce the coming Messiah because it was such great news, because it was so important. And we, ourselves, here as the church, are making this known into our community because we believe so strongly that this is the answer that every person needs. That though we are ordinary people, just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, we've experienced that good news and want for others, everyone, to know it for themselves. So, so this is a story of good news. Even at the beginning, even with the relatives from out of town, we haven't even yet got to Mary and Joseph and Jesus. We're going to do that in a few weeks to come. But this is a season where we have much to be thankful for, much to rejoice in. And so we're going to end our time with, with worship and singing, but bow with me, if you will, and we'll pray and thank God for his word to us this morning. Lord God, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. I thank you, God, that as we remind ourselves of the Christmas story, we see in every part of it evidence of your love for your people, evidence of the good news that God has brought into the world that you have, you have worked through your son. I pray, Lord, for each one here. God, would you help us to, to be faithful? Help us, Lord, to uh, know your joy. Help us, God, to see this season as an opportunity to both remember and share the good news that we have in Jesus. And I pray for the events coming up, for the Christmas Eve services. God, that this would be a place where you gather people to remind them of your love for them. And that this good news would be one that not only enters our mind, but also enters our heart. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.